Welcome to the podcast. My name is Todd Fraser. My guest today is Dr. Jason Roberts, consultant clinical pharmacist at the Royal Brisbane and Women Hospital in Queensland, Australia. Jason has a PhD in antibiotic pharmacokinetics in critically ill patients and has published numerous papers on the topic and is a regular presenter at various congresses, both nationally and internationally. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks, Todd. Jason, I guess the key question is um, is how antibiotic pharmacokinetics differs in critically ill patients compared with other patients? Well, it's a, it's a big challenge, actually, trying to understand the mechanism behind why the pharmacokinetics of some antibiotics change. I think at this point it's important to note that there are some types of antibiotics whereby the pharmacokinetics does quite dramatically change, whereas for others it doesn't. The type of antibiotics whereby you do see an alteration in their pharmacokinetics tends to relate to their physicochemistry. So those which are uh, hydrophilic are those which tend to be affected mostly. So in terms of antibiotic classes which this relates to, that is the beta-lactams, the aminoglycosides and the glycopeptides. Now the nature of the way that their pharmacokinetics is affected is in, in two ways. One from a, a volume of distribution perspective and secondly from a clearance perspective. Now as part of a standard intervention to treat critically ill patients with infection as they develop severe sepsis and septic shock and the patient is unable to maintain their own blood pressure, fluid resuscitation is the, um, a very common intervention which is used. Now in providing that patient with a lot of fluid which at times can be 10 to 15 litres depending on the, the needs of the patient, the extra volume of fluid that that present patient then has means that the drug which is administered needs to uh, be dispersed in the usual body water the patient has plus that extra volume which they've been given. So from a dilutional perspective, the drug gets diluted more so, so the effective consequent concentration is a lot less. So if you're aiming for a particular concentration which you tend to need to to treat some bacteria, it may very well be that the effect of that extra fluid actually means that that concentration ends up falling below that threshold that you're aiming for. Similarly, from a clearance perspective, uh, the provision of that extra fluid which those patients receive can cause um, the patient to become hyperdynamic uh, and that's in the presence as well of uh, administration of vasopressor medication. There's some very nice papers which demonstrate the effect of different vasopressors on renal function and renal blood flow and by increasing renal blood flow the presence of the extra fluid which has been administered and the vasopressor therapy tend to get an increase in glomerular filtration rate. So if the antibiotic is renally cleared, then of course you're going to see an increase in drug clearance. So not only are we seeing smaller concentrations because of the extra volume of fluid that those antibiotics are being administered into, but you're also seeing faster elimination of those antibiotics as well because of the other therapies that the patient's being given because of their pathology. So both of those tend to cause the major problems associated with those hydrophilic antibiotics. I presume there's obvious or there's also problems with protein binding and, and penetration, is that right? Pro 
protein binding is a, a significant issue, particularly for drugs which have um, high protein binding. So from an antibiotic perspective, the, the drugs which um, are most commonly considered to be problematic are flucloxacillin, dicloxacillin, keftraxone, ticoplanin, ertapenem and cefazolin. Each of those have protein binding, which is at least above 80%, and uh, might be as much as 95%. Uh, so as we see the development of hypoproteinemia, which is very common in critically ill patients, by way of example from the, the SAFE uh, study, 40% uh, of patients had an albumin concentration of 25 or less, which means that if our usual albumin concentration is um, 40 to 48, then the, the, uh, the decreased concentration of albumin and therefore that's present means that there's less binding sites for those uh, antibiotic molecules to bind onto. So that means that there's more of that drug which is unbound. Now in the initial phase of dosing, that's actually quite advantageous because you have a higher unbound concentration, that's the unbound concentration which is pharmacologically active and so you're more likely to have higher pharmacologically active concentrations. But similarly that pharmacologically active concentration is also the concentration which can be eliminated from the body. If it's protein bound then it's actually sequestered away from the kidneys or the liver or whatever the principal eliminating organ is. But when there's hypoproteinemia, of course, you've got a higher unbound fraction, which means that you can have increased drug clearance, which can occur, particularly in those settings whereby there is an increased drug clearance from the um, supranormal organ function, such as the augmented renal clearances was alluded to previously. So it's in that context whereby for those particularly highly protein-bound drugs, whereby you end up having a much higher unbound fraction than what you would usually, that means that there's very rapid clearance of those drugs which can occur, leading to prolonged periods whereby those concentrations will be quite low during a dosing interval. And there's been some data demonstrating this has clinically adverse effects for keftriaxone, which is a study, clinical outcome study comparing keftriaxone two gram once daily versus uh, two grams of a continuous infusion in critically ill patients with ventilator-associated pneumonia. And in just over 50 patients, there was a clinical outcome benefit for those patients receiving this continuous infusion. That continuous infusion stopped those concentrations for dropping too low during the dosing interval so that the patient was more likely to get a positive effect from the antibiotic therapy and more likely to have a positive clinical outcome. It seems like uh, some of these factors are working in opposition to one another. It must be incredibly difficult to predict what the, uh, the effect must be in the, the critically ill patient. And I guess the obvious question from that is uh, are the, the dosing structures that we have been traditionally using appropriate in, in ICU patients? Unfortunately, they're not. The theory behind them is generally appropriate, but there, does, there are nuances to those dosing schedules which, which should be adjusted to have, make an allowance for those, uh, those challenges in the intensive care unit. So by way of example, if a drug has increased drug clearance and it is a drug whereby we do want to maintain concentrations 
above a particular concentration for as long as possible, then whereas in healthy volunteers, we can give that drug uh, less frequently because of reduced clearance, but also for convenience of, of uh, nursing staff in the ICU, it is actually more appropriate instead of giving to instead of using the same frequency and higher doses, but actually to use the same dose but more frequently so that as soon as the concentration is getting to a stage whereby it may drop below our target concentration, then would we we would readminister the dose at that particular time. So from that perspective, although in a ward-based situation that would be quite inconvenient to have to continually be administering an antibiotic, the way that uh, many intensive care units are staffed makes that quite a reasonable approach to uh, optimising therapy. Similarly, there are other methods that we can do. We can change the way that we actually infuse the antibiotic. We can use a longer infusion. The longer infusion will have the effect of maintaining the concentration as well uh, by not allow, having an initially high concentration which is then able to be cleared continuously throughout the dosing interval. And as I alluded to previously, continuous infusion is something which is also quite reasonable but needs to be balanced against uh, um, issues such as drug incompatibility, drug stability and line availability. So from that perspective, for some antibiotics like the beta-lactams, there's a lot of interest being uh, given towards administration by extended infusion because it is relatively convenient and does certainly nullify a lot of those pharmacokinetic changes that occur as a result of the um, pathology that these patients have. If I can take you back a step to, to the first principles, I guess, the, I've heard you talk previously about the pharmacodynamic profiles of antibiotics and there's the three, three major categories, um, time-dependent, concentration-dependent and a combination of the two. Would you mind just reviewing that for us? Of course. So the uh, time-dependent antibiotics are most commonly recognised to be the, the beta-lactam antibiotics. Uh, so the, for these antibiotics, it's really maintaining the concentration above a threshold, which is generally considered to be the minimum inhibitory concentration, which is that measure of susceptibility of the bacteria to the antibiotic. Uh, other drugs which also share this property are linezolid and nalincosamide, so that's clindamycin and lincomycin. Uh, so for these drugs where we want to maintain the concentration above that threshold or that minimum inhibitory concentration, administering that drug is either a, um, more frequently or as an extended infusion or as a continuous infusion is an appropriate dose adaptation in the context of altered pathology. The second class are the concentration-dependent antibiotics, and this is whereby the peak concentration of antibiotic, that ratio to the MIC is what the important factor is. Now, the peak concentration occurs when someone's given an infusion of an antibiotic, might be over half an hour if it's an aminoglycoside, and at the end of that half hour period and in the following half hour thereafter, that concentration, which is measured in blood, is what's called the peak concentration. So that's when the concentration of that antibiotic is at its highest. So there's been some very nice studies, particularly for aminoglycosides, which have shown that as you increase that peak concentration, you actually get better clinical effects for those patients. So that 
as we increase that concentration, if you get that ratio towards somewhere between 8 and 10, you're likely to see um, the optimal effects of dosing those sort of drugs. So aminoglycosides are what are commonly recognised to be those concentration-dependent antibiotics, but certainly uh, newer antibiotics such as daptomycin are also considered to be concentration-dependent antibiotics. Um, metronidazole, a commonly used drug in intensive care units, also is. And fluoroquinolones are also considered to have some concentration-dependent activity. The third class are those whereby they're said to, have, uh, to be concentration-dependent antibiotics, which also have time dependence. So the parameter which describes their efficacy is what's called AUC to MIC. So AUC stands for Area Under the Concentration Time Curve. And that's a measure of the total exposure of that drug over a particular dosing interval. So essentially what we're trying to do with these antibiotics is increase the total exposure of that antibiotic to that bacteria. Drugs which fall under this class include the fluoroquinolones, the glycopeptides as well. So for these drugs, uh, for fluoroquinolones, we will, although they have a concentration-dependent element, which means that we will give the drug um, in, a, in a pulse manner through the day, so maybe two or three times daily dosing, they also have that element of time dependence, which means that uh, we don't need to... It's advantageous to give it multiple times during the day as opposed to just as a single dose, whereby that concentration can dip below the uh, MIC for too long a period. So having an understanding of each of these pharmacodynamic indices allows you to pick and choose for each of those antibiotics whereby if you do need to dose adjust, what the best method is to do that. <coughs> so for an, uh, an aminoglycoside, a patient that has altered renal function, the optimal approach to adjusting a dose isn't necessarily to reduce the size of the dose and give it the same frequency, but is actually to maintain the same dose, which may be for gentamicin, 5 or 7 milligram per kilo, but give it less frequently in the presence of that renal dysfunction. And that'll allow you to get that high peak concentration, which has been shown to be so important for clinical outcome, as well as um, reducing the likelihood of toxicity because you're not giving that drug as frequently. So, uh, a class like the glycopeptides, uh, they have slightly different uh, pharmacodynamics to the fluoroquinolones, so we've got a bit of flexibility with how those can be administered. We can actually give those as twice daily dosing or uh, all the studies which have looked at comparing continuous infusion versus twice daily dosing have actually shown no difference in clinical outcomes. So it all becomes based on achieving the target concentrations for those drugs. I guess with all of the limitations that we've talked about um, previously, the, the issue of drug monitoring, particularly for therapeutic, you know, achieving a therapeutic concentration uh, becomes relevant. Traditionally, the, the, the drug level monitoring that we've undertaken has largely been about excluding toxicity, hasn't it? Um, where are we now with our um, understanding of drug levels and drug level monitoring in ICU? Well, for um, one of the great challenges and what's changing the face of the way that we approach dosing in the ICU is the incrementing in MICs of bacteria. So essentially over the last 
20 years, we're beginning to see that the susceptibility of bacteria that we encounter in the ICU is less than what it was previously. So essentially we need to be achieving higher concentrations of antibiotics to treat those um, infections caused by those less susceptible bacteria. Now, of course, if we use the same doses that we were using 15 or 20 years ago, then we will just achieve the same concentrations that we used to then and we're far less likely to be achieving uh, the necessary concentrations which those bacteria actually require. So from that perspective, there's very little data, unfortunately, which says by what amount we should be changing our doses in response to those changing susceptibilities. And similarly, there is inconsistencies uh, in terms of it's not completely reliable what sort of um, MIC that you're definitely going to see in a patient when they, um, uh, when they develop a particular type of infection. And that sort of information can only be gained from individual microbiological uh, assessment of a patient. So what this means is that we've spoken about the altered pharmacokinetics that these patients develop, which means that we're not really sure what concentrations that we're seeing in those patients. We know that that we need to have higher concentrations of drugs in these patients because the bacteria are likely to be less susceptible than what we would have considered to be um, 10 to 15 years ago. So essentially we need to be having higher exposures of these antibiotics. And this is where the approach to therapeutic drug monitoring is growing in stature um, globally now, whereby instead of the focus being on minimising toxicity, it's actually to ensure the patients are achieving therapeutic levels. And certainly uh, there are increasing publications from different areas around the world which is showing this to be the case. Uh, interestingly, the class of antibiotics whereby we're starting to see this more so now is actually the beta-lactams. Now this is quite unusual because these are very safe antibiotics, but the magnitude of pharmacokinetic change that can occur in these patients is quite high and is quite unpredictable. And so with using what we would consider to be standard doses, we often do not achieve those targets of target concentrations that we're aiming for. The consequence of that is that we're likely to see therapeutic failure and potentially the development of antibiotic resistance. So there's increasing publications now which only demonstrate that this is a feasible intervention. There hasn't been any to date which has shown that it is associated with improved clinical outcomes. And that's really where we are at the moment, that there's a recognition that uh, altered dosing is required and therapeutic drug monitoring and subsequent dose adjustment is a mechanism to improve dosing, but we're at that precipice of uh, needing to find out does it actually make a difference to clinical outcome? And that's where the studies over the next six to 10 years will be answering that question. I guess the other major influence on drug dosing in modern intensive care practice is uh, renal replacement therapies. Um, do, how would you suggest that that's handled? Well, this is um, a very, very difficult area. The reason it is so difficult is because there's many different types of renal replacement therapy that are available. 
all the studies which have compared clinical outcomes on different types of renal replacement therapies have not shown a clinical advantage for one versus the other. Because of that, sites all around the world will do their renal replacement therapy different to other sites, which means that the amount of blood flow that's put through the system, the size of the filter, the effluent flow rate will vary between sites which means that the effect that that has on solute removal is different. So that's your clearance of your, uh, your waste products such as creatinine and urea. But similarly, for other molecules which are also cleared by dialysis such as antibiotics, you'll get varied clearance of those as well depending on what those particular settings are. Unfortunately to date there hasn't been any one study which has categorically defined what the effect of each of those different renal replacement therapy modes or settings is on kinetics. And so there's nothing which is able to say that in a particular renal replacement therapy, this is how you should be adjusting the dose of a particular antibiotic to meet the, uh, the clearance which is occurring from that renal replacement therapy. So essentially, we don't really have much data. There are a number of texts which provide one suggested dose for all continuous renal replacement therapies and quite obviously this is some information but is unlikely to be sufficient in most of the different forms of renal replacement therapy that are available. There are a couple of uh, me uh, methods that could be pursued to try and understand what the effect of renal replacement therapy is on pharmacokinetics in a local setting and that is by looking at drugs which are currently subject to therapeutic drug monitoring such as vancomycin and having a look at what clearance is occurring locally of vancomycin on those renal replacement therapy settings and trying to interpolate from that what might be happening with other drugs whereby therapeutic drug monitoring may not be available such as the beta-lactams and use that to determine whether or not is this uh, renal replacement therapy that has particularly high efficiency and therefore much higher dosing should be used. The safety of drugs uh, such as the beta-lactams means that it would be worthwhile erring on the higher side of dosing in the presence of renal replacement therapy. But if I could finish with just one more comment on renal replacement therapy, it is that the patients are often prescribed renal replacement therapy and then 24 hours later they may come off that and then be restarted 24 hours later for another 48 hours and so the filter activity isn't necessarily consistent throughout uh, a patient's stay because of uh, the dialysis um, deliberately being stopped or there may be filter clotting. So the problem associated with this is that if antibiotic doses aren't adjusted in, in this context and the dose has been given assuming that the patient is receiving dialysis, then that patient is much more likely to then develop very high drug concentrations leading to potential toxicities. So it is a very difficult area. This is obviously becoming <coughs> exceptionally complicated and uh, I guess it provides an opportunity for you to comment on the role of the pharmacist, particularly one with specific training in ICU issues. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, as a pharmacist, I'm obviously going to be quite pro the role of pharmacy in the intensive care unit. I think that the main influence that they can have here is because of the uh, significant 
training in pharmacokinetics that they receive at an undergraduate level that allows them to apply those basic concepts to try and rationally address some of these challenges. Um, a challenge for, for many pharmacists when they first start out is they don't understand the pathology of critical care, but that's something which is quite easily understood from liaison with the, the medical team. And then using that new information, it becomes quite uh, possible to then interpret what the likely pharmacokinetic consequences are of pathology. And then in the context, context of the pharmacodynamics of the drug, what dose adjustments should be undertaken. So I think that their basic training allows them to understand the concepts of pharmacokinetics, the interrelationship of different pharmacokinetic parameters and how dosing can be adjusted to accommodate those changes. So I think that pharmacists do have a big role and that's purely just in a dose adjustment context for antibiotics, not necessarily taking into account all the other activity which they can have in ensuring that uh, protocols and guidelines are followed as has been shown in other studies to be appropriate. If I can just put a clinical focus on it for a moment, is there evidence that the, um, or about the magnitude of the problem that we're talking about? Do we know how many patients are underdosed and whether that actually causes harm? We don't have that data in a prospective form. There has been about six or seven retrospective analyses of pharmacokinetic data which have compared drug exposure with clinical outcomes. And each of them do show that there is a threshold value whereby if antibiotic concentrations exceed that particular pharmacokinetic exposure, the patients are much more likely to have a positive result from treatment of that infection. So data exists for um, kefepenem and keftazidine for treatment of pneumonias, uh, meropenem for treatment of pneumonias, uh, there's an, uh, fluoroquinolones, particularly ciprofloxacin in treatment of serious bacterial infections, uh, linezolid in treatment of serious bacterial infections and aminoglycosides whereby once daily has been compared with twice daily dosing to really demonstrate the importance of high peak concentrations on improving clinical outcomes. But all of this data, except for the aminoglycoside data, is retrospective and not necessarily designed to try and elucidate what the answers are to these issues um, are currently. And so the results actually don't necessarily conform with what the initial predictions may have been based on in vitro infection models. And so there's still a little bit of doubt about where the real answer lies. And so certainly more prospective data is required to try and properly define what the answers to these issues are. In regards to those three major potential interventions uh, of uh, increased or, or altered dosing, um, monitoring of drug levels and infusions. Uh, is there any evidence that supports changing prescription practices in ICU at this point or are we still waiting for, for further information? The only study which has shown, well there's now two studies which have shown advantages of continuous infusion of beta-lactams in the intensive care unit. I previously referred to one study looking at keftriaxone in ventilator-associated pneumonia patients, which was uh, an Australian study with over 50 patients, which showed uh, 
an advantage in terms of clinical outcome in a multivariate regression statistical model in favour of continuous infusion. More recently, a, uh, a uh, multi-centre continuous infusion versus bolus dosing study which was done for uh, three antibiotics, so the clinician was able to choose one of three antibiotics, uh, meropenem, piperacillin, tazobactam, or ticocillin clavulanate for intensive care unit patients, has also shown a, quite a strong signal favouring continuous infusion of beta-lactams for severe sepsis and septic shock. Now, on the basis of this uh, data, the National Health and Medical Research Council have funded a project grant to run a larger study in 20 intensive care units now throughout Australia, New Zealand and Hong Kong to collect a much larger sample to see whether or not any definitive clinical uh, data can be gained or from this particular intervention and to demonstrate exactly how beneficial it may be in these patients. And I think it's an important point to note is that it really is in those patients with severe sepsis and septic shock where they're likely to have the most profoundly altered pharmacokinetics that these interventions are most likely to show a benefit. And so finally to the future, what is your group working on and what would you like to see done in this area in the near future? So we, in our group we're quite big believers in... Um, optim optimising pharma, uh, antibiotic dosing for critically ill patients. We've got some data from Burns patients which show that if you, if you get dosing um, optimised early, then you have a reduced length of treatment. Where we believe in some patients it also will uh, lead to improved clinical cure, but it's quite difficult protocolising a study which is able to... Um, accurately define which patients are most likely to benefit from these interventions. But I think that what our work that we're hoping to produce in the next five years will tell clinicians exactly what initial doses of antibiotics should be used for, for different patients. So it's able to have a, a bedside measure of volume of distribution and um, likely drug clearance so that the patient within the first two hours of um, consideration of antibiotic therapy will be able to be given a dose which is achieving therapeutic concentrations rapidly and then from then uh, dose adjustment can occur based on what the likely uh, drug clearance is. I think this is uh, where um, the impact of understanding antibiotic pharmacokinetics is going to become most important is in that initial therapy and making sure that those initial exposures are as good as they can be. You're maximising the rate of bacterial kill, reducing the amount of bacteria in the body and therefore giving the body the, most, uh, the best opportunity to recover. Jason, thank you very much for uh, helping us shine a very bright light on this uh, very important issue in intensive care practice. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Todd. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of critical care education resources. Our sites contain podcasts, video presentations and modules, searchable libraries and image databases, and much, much more. 
critique can be found at www.crit-iq.com.au and Crit Nurse at www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, visit our podcast page on the iTunes site and give us a high five.